Uh, for the seven weeks or so, uh, we're looking at Luke 15 and how the gospel creates a new kind of community that I hope St. John's will reflect. And today we begin to look at the parable of the prodigal son. And I want to try, oops, wait, wait a second, I got the wrong one. That was the old set of notes. Let's go to the right set of notes. Oh, this happened to me before. There we go. Again, start off with the same notion that we are looking at this uh, parable of the prodigal son over seven weeks, and you're hearing the same story a few times read because it, there is so much there. And in particular, what I'm focusing on during these uh, few weeks is how it creates a new kind of community instead of relationships. Now, the parable of the prodigal son is not often thought of as a meltdown of community and, and how it can be restored, but it does. And as I said last week, today's passage portrays a family that is unraveling. You may recall how the younger son asked for his inheritance from his father, which was in essence wishing his father dead, thus humiliating the father and the family. But we also see that this younger son has got off into a foreign country, spent his inheritance on wild living, and ended up feeding pigs just to survive. So not only did the younger son reject his family, he also rejected his faith community altogether. Now the rest of the story shows how the community is restored. And to that end, we're going to look at this morning this theme of repentance. A couple of weeks ago, in the parable of the lost sheep, we learned that God loves repentance. In the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son's return to the father is an example of repentance. So today I'm going to address four aspects of repentance. One, its importance. Two, what it is. Three, the key to doing it. And then lastly, what kind of community results from repentance. So let's look at its importance. What is it that brings the younger son to his senses and comes back to the father? It's repentance. It says in verse 17, he came to himself or he came to his senses. What sparks the father's, what, what is it that sparks the father's radical love for the son? Again, repentance. It's when you repent that the love of God, which is always, always being directed towards you, whether you repent or not, um, that's when it explodes into your life. How often does Jesus say things like, repent for the kingdom, of God is at hand, or repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says it over and over again. Do you know what Jesus is saying in these, in these phrases? Well, he's saying this. Unless you repent, you can't receive what I have to give you, what I'm always offering you. So repentance is the key to everything in the Christian life. When Martin Luther began the Reformation, he nailed 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. And the first of them was this. When our Lord Jesus Christ said repent, he meant the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. The first of Luther's theses was that all of life is about repentance. Now, that is a very different notion from the world's notion of repentance. For example, Lord Byron wrote a famous line which says, the weak alone repent. 
In other words, it's a sign of weakness, it disempowers, and thus an aberration. But from a biblical perspective, repentance is the opposite of these three things. First of all, it's a sign of great strength. Do you realize, and I hope you've experienced this, how strong both emotionally and spiritually you need to be to repent? You need to be very strong spiritually and emotionally to do it. Second, it's liberating. A repentant person is free from pretense and evasion, the need to win every argument to defend oneself. A repentant person is quick and happy to repent. Why? Because they know it's the better way. That's why, by the way, um, if you ever have problems with something I've said or done, I want you to come directly to me. Because I want to know. I want to know if I've done something to offend you. I want to know if I've done something, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Because I want to repent and do the right thing for the sake, your sake and, of course, for my sake and the sake of the whole community. Therefore, repentance is something that should happen all the time and not treated as an aberration. Now, if you still don't think repentance is, an important, is important to consider, uh, can, uh, import, is important, consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, 7.10. It says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. Isn't that interesting? If on the one hand there is a kind of repentance that leads to salvation and no regret, yet on the other hand, one that leads to misery and death, we better get it right. So to that end, let's move on to point two. What is biblical rep repentance? For the answer, we need to look at the three things this younger son does right in the parable. First of all, as I mentioned before, he came to his senses. Now, what does this mean? The sins, flaws, transgressions, mistakes, whatever you want to call it, that causes the most problems in your life and my life, and for those around us, by definition, are the ones we can't see. The ones we can't see. And that's why they're the worst ones, because we carry on doing them, because we don't even realize we're doing it. The human heart runs in denial like my car runs on gas. It took me about 20 years to finally see things that I was doing wrong in, in my marriage. And I bet you many of you men can think of the same thing. You know, it takes a long time to kind of beat us into shape after a while, thanks to our lovely wives. And I'm thankful for that, sometimes. <laughs> um, but, so how does this repentance then happen? Well, second repentance is something that happens to you. It's something that happens to you. When things go wrong as a result of your actions, when you break down or there is a meltdown in your life, you come to the realization and say things like, what have I been doing? I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I'm like that. And the younger son comes to his senses because of the mess he is in and, got, and the mess he got himself in and the help he received from his father. And it's only then that he was able to repent. Now, anyone who really knows oneself, really knows one's heart, also knows 
that what you know has to come to you. It does not come at your command. The real question is, thus is, how will you respond? Well, hopefully, you realize, like the younger son, that you first and foremost have offended God. Notice the first thing the son says to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven. Why does the son first say he has sinned against heaven or God, uh, not his earthly father? We see the same thing happening in Psalm 51, when, where David confesses the, the, his sin when he had a soldier killed so he can be with his wife. And when he does that, his confession is first to God. Why? Because you can only be truly liberated from the sin, from sin when you repent, that you repent of, when you realize that it's been committed first and foremost against the goodness of God. And why is this important? Okay, again, okay, let's, let's think about this. What is it that awakens you to see you've sinned? Well, I've said before, it's often some sort of pain, some suffering, maybe embarrassment, that helps you see that basically you're acting self-centered. And what's your immediate response? Well, you want to do anything to get rid of the pain, or the suffering, or the embarrassment, right? But notice the focus here. It's all about getting rid of your pain, your suffering, or your embarrassment. So what's the issue here? The, consequence, the consequences of your sin is the issue, not the sin itself. And when the consequences of your sin are more important than the sin itself, your repentance is simply reinforcing your self-centeredness. So here repentance is simply another way of self-pity and self-absorption. You may be thinking, I'll do anything it takes to get rid of the pain, but you're still as self-centered and self-absorbed as before. So why bring God into it? Well, when you see that your sin is offense towards God's goodness, then you can deal with the sin itself and change your life. When you realize that you have sinned against the goodness of God, then you begin to see, look at this good and loving God I have. Look at all he's done for me. Look at how I've broken his heart. Your focus is not so much on the consequences of your sin, but on what you've done to the person of God you've sinned against. And once you realize that, then you can truly change. Now, the younger son does not just say, I've sinned against God, but also against uh, uh, my, his father in your sight, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Notice here uh, some good stuff. There's no blame shifting. There are no excuses. He doesn't say, I'm a young man and I had to sow my wild oats. So true repentance focuses one on God, and it's done so with no self-pity and takes full responsibility for what one has done. But we haven't yet fully grasped what repentance is all about uh, it's all about because the key to understanding repentance here is not what the younger son did, but what he did not do. He tells his father, I am not worthy to be your son, but, and this is an important but, make me like one of your hired servants. You see, back then, a hired servant lived in town and earned wages. And so what the, the son was really saying was, 
I don't want your mercy. I will pay you back every penny, every penny, so that I can earn my way back into your good graces. Now, as a parable, this story needs to be read at two levels. At a human level, it is perfectly fine to expect to make restitution to someone you've harmed. We teach our children that. We expect that of ourselves. We expect that of others to some degree. But with the Father and God, this is a big mistake. Why? Here I want to, to answer this question, I want to make an important distinction between religion and the gospel, something that I will come back to again and again in future sermons. You see, the religious person believes that if I have a good record, God will bless me so that my power, my confidence, and my hope rests on my record. And for those who believe such a thing, the very notion of repentance is a disaster. Why? Well, consider this. If I have to repent first, it's a sign of weakness because I've lost, I lose all my power, I lose all my confidence, and the very self I've created, and thus my hope. If I have to repent second, and, and to, atone, to atone for my sin, I must beat myself up over and over and over again to get my good record back. And then lastly, how do you ever know you've ever beaten yourself up enough? Right? Basically never. I wonder if this sounds familiar for some of you, at least to a degree. I know it sounds familiar to me. But from a gospel perspective, let's think of that. When the younger son comes back, what does the father do? Notice he is not sitting in his house waiting for his good-for-nothing son to come back and beg for his love. Instead, he's on a hill looking for any sign of his son's return. And when he sees his son, this Middle Eastern patriarch runs towards him, which such a man would never have done in that culture. It would have been an embarrassment to do it. Embraces him, puts a signet ring on his finger, a sign that he is totally welcome back into the family, and refuses to let the son earn his way back. Don't you think the father's overwhelming acceptance made the son's repentance a little easier? If not a lot easier, of course it did. The source of your confidence, the source of your power, hope, it's not your record, it's not my record, but it's his record, in particular what Jesus has done for us. You know, when Jesus was like that younger son, hanging naked on a cross and crying out, where are you, God? The door was slammed shut. There was no embrace. No robe, no fatted calf, and no ring. Instead, he was rejected with the rejection we, with that younger son, rightly deserve. And that image is what drives you to true repentance. But this is important to keep note of. On the one hand, the gospel, the cross of Jesus, reminds us of our sins and utterly humbles us. But at the same time, the same time is crucial here, it incredibly affirms us, showing us what great length God would go to to get us back. It's very important to keep these two things together. If we just focus on God's judgment, our sins will devastate us because there's no sense of hope. But if we only see how merciful and forgiving God is without taking responsibility for what we've done, we'll never truly repent will never change. 
and thus we'll never be free from the sin that grips us. Okay, lastly, to the, kind of the main point, what kind of community do you get when it, it is really into repentance? First of all, you realize that you sometimes, and that means all of us, need to come to your senses, and when you do, you see you can't be consumers of the gospel, which is a real problem today in church land. Coming to church is not primarily about what I want or what's in it for me, but it's, of course, about God and what God wants of us. Thus, a community of repentance is a group of people who is together always seeking what God wants as they worship together, study scripture together, minister and make decisions together. And thus, in such a community, there is no room for, I want this or I want that because no one person knows best. Only God knows best, and that's why our focus and attention is always, always on what God has to say to us. Second, and I think this is the most important part, the church, a church that is into repentance means that we need each other to bring each other to our senses. I'm not sure that's proper English, but hopefully you get the, the point. In other words, we need to be accountable to each other. As I said before, the very need to repent must come to us, right? Because sin, in its very nature, blinds us to what we're doing. That's why we need sometimes to be told. That's why we need to be accountable to each other. Now, that does not mean, that does not mean we should put up with abuse or, or being treated poorly by somebody else. Nor should we do that. Jesus shows us that we are sinners, yet always, always, like the Father in the parable, overwhelms us first with his love and affirmation, and thus we need to do the same thing with each other. You see, I think you'll all agree with me, it's very hard to let oneself be vulnerable, and thus accountable to someone else. Why? Because we're scared. We're scared we're going to get burned, because no matter how hard we do try to depend on God's grace, as we're called to do, we still depend on what others think of us. And to some degree, that's okay, because it gives us a sign that we're on the right path. But if you know how much that person who's talking to you loves you, cares for you, and is in your corner, you'll be more open to advice and guidance, right? I know that would work for me. I remember when I was first a lay reader back in St. James a long time ago. And uh, my rector then was wonderful. And I remember him telling me the importance of when you're lead, you know, helping somebody uh, with somebody else, giving them guidance, to always say at least three positive things before you say one corrective thing or a word of advice. Right? Always at least three. If it's always three negatives with one positive, you're not going to go very far, right? We need to build each other up. We need to show that, you know, uh, that you can trust me and trust each other. And when that happens, then repentance is possible. And God, you know, just to finish, I've come here because I know God wants to bless this place. It has blessed it. You are a blessing to this place, and God wants to truly bless this place as we move forward. 
And I truly believe it's got big plans for us. And so if we're, we listen carefully, if we're you know, quick to repent in this way that I've described, nothing's going to stop us. God will, is going to do some amazing, amazing things here. Amen.